Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Hey, Corey, how you doing? Well, I am doing great. How are things for you? I'm glad you're doing great because I'm about as tired as I've ever been. <laughs> are you, are you ever, finally done? I am done. I got home yesterday. I'm, I have a friend who, when he's exhausted, he says, oh, I feel like I need a pint of blood. I think I need a gallon of blood based on his, uh, using his uh, analogy. It's, uh, I don't know, you just, you go and 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 you don't realize how wore down you're getting until you, you get home. And your wife is talking to you and you fall asleep in the middle of her sentence. And <laughs> so uh, unlike most husband-wife relationships, when my wife says, you're not listening, the odds are she's correct. I fell asleep. <laughs> uh, you're, you're like an old bull elk after the rut. Just you need to find you a little sanctuary and lay down and have food right there. You don't have to stand up. Just stick your neck out and grab some food and not move for about three months. There you go. And hope no wolves come and find me because I don't well, think I got the energy to run away from them right now. <laughs> Uh, and you were in Arizona, right? Yeah, I was uh, seven days down in sunny Arizona chasing coos deer with a rifle and then quail with a shotgun. And uh, it was interesting that we gave ourselves seven days thinking, well, we'll spend most of it hunting deer. Marcus, my camera guy, and I, we shot two deer, one the first evening, one the second evening, and then we we're off quail hunting. So, wow. That's a heck of a deal there. Uh, that sounds like elk season for you. Usually hunt elk one or two evenings, and you hunt grouse the rest of the time. So, <laughs> you know, if you could have seen me, Corey, I I need to take you on one of these gambles quail gamble quail hunts because they run like grouse. They they you know how grouse sometimes when they're taken off they're just walking through the brush rather than yep. flushing. Well, that's how these quail are, but they run through cactus. Right now, I'm looking at my <laughs> looking at my shins, and it looks like I got in a fight with a porcupine. I was pulling quills out all night last night. <laughs> uh, oh, well. I was going to say you have to. You're going to have to be careful at your age going to Arizona in December. You might just end up staying there. I, I know. I'll become one of those snowbirds. I, yeah. If it wasn't for uh, COVID and social distancing and everything, I might have stopped at Denny's and took advantage of the senior citizen meal. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's for a whole other podcast. That's, that's right. No, I was going to say, I, I posted a picture of my new log splitter, and man, you'd have mm -hmm. thought I turned 70 or something yesterday. People were coming out of the woodwork to tell me I was old and weak and cheating. Well, and I, I think you read my comment that I think you're a fool. <laughs> not because you're not you have a log splitter. So they're like on the spectrum of firewood burners and firewood cutters, the people who have a log splitter 
are the smartest of the firewood cutters. Yeah. But that still doesn't get you over the hurdle of being very smart because you, you cut firewood when cutting firewood is grounds for losing usually one or two weekends of elk hunting each year for the average person. Now I know that you can convince your wife to do it when you're gone. The average person can't. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit, on the other side of average, I don't know which side, but <laughs> uh, my uh, brother sent me a chainsaw. He's a logger. He's from my mom came out here and said, "Hey, bring Randy this chainsaw." I looked at it. <clears throat> yeah, held it a little bit, put it back in the trunk of my mom's car, and said, "When you go home, when you drive home, bring this back to him." <laughs> I don't need that. That is just a, one more. In the stepping stones towards divorce, that is one step closer. So, uh, that's, I love I love wood heat. I actually mm. enjoy getting firewood. I didn't enjoy. I, I used to enjoy splitting, and I like to split a cord or two. But we're getting eight cord put up for the winter, and that's a lot of wood. When that splitter was done splitting all that, I had a stack of split wood next to me that. I think could have housed uh, a whole bunch of those gamble coils for the winter. I saw that in the pictures. And, you know, just because you have a big stack of it doesn't make you any smarter. It doesn't? No. So Why? Because How does having a big stack of firewood not make me smart? Because it proves that you somehow believe the fallacy that cutting wood, splitting it up, and heating your home with it, is a good use of your time, effort, and your marital pardons. You know, in every marriage, you only get so many pardons. Uh, and if, you, if you're in the firewood operation, you're going to expend some of those pardons due to cutting and stacking and burning firewood. Just take my <laughs> word for it. See, that's, that's my wife and I. That's our date time is going out and getting firewood. Uh, so my wife's here. Hey, honey, hey, my wife's listening. Would you consider it a date if you and I went out and split firewood? She has a knife in her hand. She's, she's <laughs> making something. She looked like she's going to throw it at me. <laughs> she's not. She's laughing. Like, don't you even think about it, pal. Uh, so, anyhow. But you've already set that precedent, so. Well, I, I've, you know, I, this is the, your other uh, shortcoming, Corey, is you have built some of your own houses. Yeah. You've built houses for others. Mm-hmm. So, so you've completely destroyed any hope of being unhandy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I why, am, that's uh, why this, this, in August, I saw you out there putting in like three miles of slagstone for your walkway. <laughs> <laughs> and I built a garden shed and a greenhouse and a chicken coop and I got eight cord of wood. See, you built your wife a greenhouse. Kim mm-hmm. and I, she just see, she just looked at me because we just drove out to this five acres that we bought. We are going to pick up my mountain caribou from the taxidermist, and we got to drive right by there. And uh she says, Well, I'm gonna need a greenhouse. And I gave her every reason in the world why a greenhouse is a bad idea. And then you blow it by 
building your wife a greenhouse. <laughs> I can send you pictures. No, please don't. <laughs> no. I want to hunt elk. See, I, it's I just it's about planning and efficiency. It makes me more efficient. It, I mean, the log splitter, that's just an example of efficiency. Oh, so yeah. I had more time. I actually got some slack because in my Instagram story, I posted some video of me splitting the wood with the log splitter and I was wearing full Sitka. You wouldn't believe the messages I got. Oh, must be nice to split wood in a thousand dollars worth of gear. Oh, you must be sponsored and, you know, on and on. I'm like, listen, I came home from a morning elk hunt and spent that two hours splitting firewood and went right back out. So I wasn't about to change out of my camo. Well, there you go. See? Efficiency. All right. Well, let's let's move on to elk hunting because <laughs> talking about building greenhouses, cutting firewood, splitting firewood, I don't want anybody listening to think, oh, Corey Jacobson does that. It must be a good idea. I'm here to tell you folks, listen to Corey when it comes to calling elk, elk setups, all this other stuff, but don't listen to him when it comes to firewood being handy and domestic details. I don't know, Randy. Oh. I I just I get attention from my wife when I do cool things like that. She just thinks I'm great. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I haven't tried that route. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could ever be handy enough for her to think I'm cool. So. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, that so, was a rabbit hole. Yeah. Before we forget, before we go down another rabbit hole. Do you know that uh, through January 31st, if somebody uses our promo code to uh, uh, join the Go Hunt Insider and all the things there, or even if if they if they somehow have an active account, even if they've used our promo code in the past and that gave them an active account as of January 31st, we're picking. Well, somebody's going to get a life membership for RMEF. Wow. Yeah. That's a, what's that, like a $1,600 value or something? Yep. Are, are we paying yep. for that again? I remember you sprung something yep. on us last year and we ended up paying, which I'm totally fine with. Just uh, mm -hmm. that's why I asked what the value was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Last year, uh, I didn't tell you this until we got on the podcast and it was too late to retract it. Last year, I said, you know, Corey, for everybody who does the sportsman membership at RMEF, which is a hundred bucks, will pay the first $20. And you said, well, how many? And then I got to thinking, you know, being the account, I'm like, whoa, that could blow the budget. So we capped it out the first 500 people. So this is, we're getting off on the cheap this time. We are, we are, but the, what a great, great thing to do that's uh yeah. so all they have to do is go to go hunt and sign up for an insider membership yeah. and use the promo code i'm guessing it's still elk talk it better be and yeah. they are going to be entered to win a life membership through the rocky mountain elk foundation yep and if they're already a member of go hunt they and they haven't used our our uh, promo code. They can extend or renew using our promo code. Or if they were or currently are because they they use our promo code, they're already in it. So they didn't. Even and do they still get the fifty dollars of Mad Money in the gear yeah. shop? Oh yeah, 
Yeah, wow. and somebody. And somebody. I was just going to say, I thought when you mentioned Go Hunt, you were going to talk about the twelve days of Insider that's going on through December twenty second, and all members are entered to win. I think what seventy eight prizes or something over those twelve days, the tenth of December through the twenty second. Uh, like forty one thousand yeah. dollars in value, I saw in the email or something. So yeah, but in the fine yeah. print it says Randy and Corey and family are not eligible. That yeah, doesn't surprise me. Because I can't, Corey I can't won, even go hunting. Right. If if Corey won, he'd just use it out there while he's splitting firewood. Man, I couldn't you'll, imagine. You'll, you'll you'll win one of those nice sleeping bags or something next time we see you <laughs> doing an Instagram post about splitting firewood. You'll have your sleeping bag out there. <laughs> Uh, well now is the the right time to be getting an insider membership because i know i've been uh, using mine quite frequently the last two or three weeks just trying to plan next fall and see what points i have where and how i can utilize them and yep right right now they have the utah draw odds are live uh the current ones and the reason that's important is brady and i brady is the guy who does a huge amount of their strategy articles. We're doing a a piece. He's going to do a strategy article. I'm going to do a video about point creep in Utah. And we're going to say, look, here it is for elk. You can extrapolate this to other species in Utah. And you can extrapolate it and use the same methodology for Colorado that has a preference point system, for Wyoming that has a preference point system. Maybe even for Arizona, where twenty percent of the tags go on a preference point system. For Oregon, uh, yeah, I forgot about that. So yep. we're we're doing that because, and some of the questions that we've got since the last time we did a podcast four years ago, uh, <laughs> it's uh, some of those questions are related to how do I know what information I can rely on from last year and which information should I not rely on? Yeah. Um, And every year is different. And we talked about this whole point creep thing when in, I think June or something, there's a, we have a podcast after where we talked about it, but in summary, what Brady and I will be putting together out there is here is the number of point buyers who just are buying points by species, by state. So if you got a big pile of people in front of you, expect a lot of point creep. Yep. And in a state like Utah next year, their season dates for archery reset. So that means that it goes through like September 17th or 18th, which is the latest that the archery season in Utah ever goes. So there's a lot of people that have been holding out waiting to apply for an archery tag for when the season extends further into September. So I would imagine next year, the odds are going to be worse in Utah than they were this year, just simply by that fact alone. Yep. So if you think you're right at that cusp for whatever tag, you better look at how many people are buying points one to 20 points ahead of you because I would bet any money when the season dates go to a primo date like they will next year for elk in Utah, archery elk, you're going to see a ton of point creep beyond what anybody expected for those archery hunts. So our, our, our point of doing all that is we want to have that information out there so people 
understand this is where point creep comes from. It doesn't come by looking at last year's applicants. It comes from looking at who's been standing on the sidelines buying points who now jump into the game. And uh, so but how it came up is Brady and I were on the phone and I was talking about some emails I got of people saying, yeah, I wish I knew a way to predict that. He and I remarked that one of the things we both look at as much as we look at last year's draw odds are very important. We also look, at least in these states with preference points, we look at what are the piles or the layers of points for the species we're applying for and anticipate that a lot of those folks are, they're going to start burning their points. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're just getting into a, into a point pool, a lot of those people are going to, you can assume over the next 10 years, those people who are just buying points are going to be added in there. So if you just wanted to get the, the overall odds, you know, that's, it's a big piece of that puzzle that's not shown in the actual application and successful draw odds. Yeah. The, the, excuse me, the analysis in Utah shows that for people above uh, 17 elk points, the number of actual applicants with 17 or more points is only one third of the total people who have 17 or more points. The other uh, two thirds, the other two thirds are just over there buying points. So interesting. The, the pool of point buyers is actually higher than the pool of applicants for those really high point totals. Yep. So, and you look at, then the same thing applies to a lot of these states. And now that Wyoming has been in this program for 14, 15 years, we're starting to see Wyoming taking the same trend that Colorado did, the same trend that Utah has, at least for the half of the tags that are in the, the point pool. So uh, Brady told me that our goal, I hope I meet my end of the goal. I'm looking here. He said, Hey, we got to have this ready to roll on December 21st. So. Wow. That's, there you uh, go. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my calendar right now and you did not leave yourself much time. <laughs> so you're an accountant. You're used to waiting until the day before deadline and working all night to finish things up. Yeah, that, and then add to that the fact that uh, while I was down in Arizona, Brady was extracting all of this information, the point buyers for each species at each point level from each state. And when I got home, he had it all in nice little spreadsheets. (laughs) That must be nice. How's that? Yeah. Well, cool. Well, I think, uh, you know, I was looking Arizona at the season dates there next year. Cause I've got a pretty good little pile of points built up there. Um, you know, Wyoming looking at, at possibly putting in and trying to draw a general tag in Wyoming. Cause I've got two or three points built up there. Uh, Montana, I'm getting, getting a fair amount of points there. So I'm starting to be able to have some strategy, but you know, one of the things I looked at was the, the moon phase for next year. And this year, I was super excited about the moon phase in September. Next year, it's about as bad as it can get, I think. it's yeah. at, Typically, <clears throat> I like to hunt, you know, the days, I would say the seven days leading up to the fall equinox have been consistently successful in getting good 
good elk vocalization. It's, you know, the elk are bugling good by then. They're still responsive to coming into calls because they haven't got their cows and everything. And so that, you know, 13th, 14th, 15th, somewhere in there through the 22nd, 23rd has kind of been the ideal week if you had to just look at a calendar and, and pick a time frame. I think the fall equinox is the 22nd uh, again this year or in 2021. So, you know, that puts me 15th through the 22nd, somewhere in there would be my ideal week to, to hunt elk. In 2021, in September, the full moon hits on the 20th. So that means you've got at least three quarters of a moon on the 15th through the 24th, which is that prime time that now we're going to be dealing with the full moon during that prime time. So then you have to start thinking, is it better to go the week before and hope that it's not too hot and hope the elk are, are cranking by the 7th or 8th? Or do you wait and go that last week of September when the moon's kind of fading away but the bulls are herded up and might be a little bit harder to, to call in. So it's kind of a yeah. tricky. And then the other real caveat, and the question I think you probably get it a ton too, but I think probably the question I get the most when it comes to which week is the best week to hunt is Colorado. Because Colorado throws that muzzleloader season right smack in the middle of the best week of archery hunting. And so I know some of those units in Colorado get quite a bit of muzzleloader pressure, Others don't, and next year the uh, the season dates are September 11th through the 19th. So you throw that in there, you've got muzzleloader hunters the 11th through the 19th of September. You've got a full moon on the 20th going, you know, a lot of bright moon through the 25th. So basically the 10th through the 25th, you've got some obstacles in the state of Colorado to deal with next year. And so what's your advice? I haven't. I haven't completely formalized that yet. <laughs> every winter, I do the. I do an article on Elk 101 titled "What's the Best Week to Hunt Elk in 2021," yeah. and I've, I sat, sat down last week and got started on it and started listing out some of the advantages of different weeks and the disadvantages. And man, I don't. For Colorado, especially, it's so hit and miss sometimes that. 5th through the 12th could be good, and you're kind of, you know, getting in front of the muzzleloader hunters. You've got a great moon phase, but, man, if it's just hot or there are fires or just there's, – there's more factors that can be a disadvantage early in the month than later in the month, so that has to be weighed. But if you wait until later in the month, the muzzleloader season's over the 19th. Uh, the season, I think the archery season goes – and it's really cool because they set – dates now it's not the last saturday in august or anything it's september 2nd through september 30th so you get through the 30th now to hunt in colorado but if you're looking like that 23rd through the 30th that first half of it's still going to have a bit of moon and you're again dealing with bulls that are probably herded up and a little bit more difficult to call in and so there's just yeah. By, by the time I get done, I'll have a table of all the advantages and disadvantages to each week and uh, kind of list out, you know, and I think it'll be an independent. Each person's going to have to make that choice as far as what they're willing to contend with and how much they're willing to roll the dice and how many muzzleloader hunters the units they hunt in Colorado might get. And there's just a, there's a lot of factors next year. Yeah, the archery season next year in 2021 in Colorado goes September 2nd through September 30th. Yeah, so great day. You got, 
Yeah, you got the archery or the muzzleloader hunters in there from September 11th through the 19th. So those nine days, yeah, that's problematic. They could be. And I've talked to people that have hunted during that time frame and said they've never seen a muzzleloader hunter. They've never heard a muzzleloader shot go off. I've talked to other people that said it looks like a sea of orange coming up the mountain on opening morning of muzzleloader season. So I think it just depends on the unit and how many people actually hunt that unit with the muzzleloader. Or this is just Corey trying to scare people away from Colorado next year so he can step up a unit or two with the points he has. <laughs> I, I have plenty of points, and I don't think I'm going to be able to step up a unit. I'm in that no-man's land where I can draw any of the mid-tier hunts, but I don't think I'll ever, due to point creep, ever be able to draw you know, unit 201, unit 2, unit 10, probably yeah. even unit 61, which I think is probably top four or five units in Colorado. It's probably just out of my reach to ever, ever actually catch up with it. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's a heck of a deal. Yeah. So there's the a little other, bit of sunshine on your parade. <laughs> yeah. The other option is to just go rifle hunting. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an option. <laughs> but i would say most of our listeners probably if they aren't primarily an archery hunter they probably are somewhat an archery hunter and also go rifle hunting yep so yeah it's a good way to go i i'm looking at actually the way the calendar lines up and for what i'm hoping to do next year it's going to work pretty good. You know, that middle week's going to be a, a little bit of a hit and miss due to the full moon. I probably won't put in for Arizona just due to the fact that the season in Arizona would fall right during the full moon. And I've been in Arizona and New Mexico during full moons, and it definitely makes a difference there. Uh, so based on what I'm kind of tentatively planning right now, the season works out really good. I'm going to be able to get in a couple archery hunts and be able to spend good amount of time with my kiddos uh, archery hunting as well as rifle hunting and if everything goes good we'll uh, we'll end up rifle hunting in idaho again next year cool yeah so the the kind of following down the path of people asking questions related to next year um we got a person who uh i'm not sure if they're from wyoming or colorado but I said, you're probably aware of the large fires between Estes Park, Colorado, and Laramie, Wyoming. And, yeah, I think we all were praying for people there. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of tough times when those big fires come through. Um, but the question is, I'm planning my archery season for next year. I'm just wondering, is it even worth my time to hunt those burned areas, or should I just find some other place that has better cover for elk? Hmm. It's a good question. Yeah, it is. Are I don't know my answer. answer. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give an opinion. I don't know if it's a good answer. If I lived nearby, I'd go and check it out and see how the landscape is recovering in June or July. And if I didn't have a chance to go and check it out in advance, I've hunted enough one-year-old burns to know that usually they can be pretty good. And I would go find some of these 
periphery areas or pockets that maybe are within the burn. And I would be hunting those next year. Yep. That, that would be my exact answer to just, we've actually in Colorado, I hunted the only time I've hunted Colorado, we hunted, they had an early fire. I want to say it was April or May. They had a fire uh, in Southern Colorado. And when we were there, the end of August, the grass was probably two to three feet tall of green grass in that burn area. So all the trees were just scorched, but the ground cover that came up after that burn was ridiculous. And, you know, they got a whole bunch of summer rain after the fire and the elk were just thick in that fresh fire. You know, that's only what, four or five months old at that point, if that. So yeah, it can be very productive, you know, right after the fire. But like you said, I would be finding pockets that didn't burn because if it burned and looks like the moon, the elk aren't going to use it. They've got to have cover and they've got to have feed. And sometimes those really hot fires don't leave either cover or feed. And uh, if there's no cover and feed, there's probably no elk. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons I like to hunt them in the first, say, one to five years after a burn is the wind hasn't blown all those dead trees down yet. <laughs> and you can actually walk through there. <laughs> yeah. And you start hunting a 10, 12, 15 year old burn where these burn trees didn't get harvested. And eventually the wind, it's just like a pile of matchsticks. And we tried to climb through some of that stuff in New Mexico this year with our sweepstakes hunter. Oh my goodness. I, I'm just praying, please nobody get hurt as we're we're climbing up some of these. They're stacked over my head. And I'm like, why did I lead us into here? And we were in pursuit of a bull that was bedded. And finally, I just told Ty, the hunter, I said, Ty, this is a good way for somebody to get hurt, especially when we got to climb uphill out of here with weight on our backs. I think I'm going to call this one off. And he had this big sigh of relief. He said, <laughs> boy, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> but, point of that being i hunted that spot five or six years ago before all the the trees fell and it was way more conducive to hunting than now you know the burn is 12 years old i think something like that and yeah. uh so i'd i'd be there hunting it and i i don't know i just i've found that these one-year-old burns especially along the edges of the burn can be really really good yep now i could be wrong and we'll get an email from the person saying hey you not heads i went there i spent my whole season and i didn't even hear a bugle <laughs> and that, that was such a, a common theme that i heard this year especially in colorado it just sounds like it was a rough rough season that people did they spent seven or eight days and didn't even hear a bugle and only saw tracks one or two days and yeah kind of matches what we saw to a more extreme degree maybe yeah so i'm going to give you what happened on my colorado elk hunt which was a first rifle hunt in october uh, October 10th season open and then it's going to lead us into this question of our next person who submitted it but I went on that hunt climbed up to just about 12,000 feet and called in two bulls one on the scouting day we had to get out of there because I was afraid he's going to run us over and I knew he was going to smell us 
he came running down the mountain and all I did was a couple cow calls. I'm like, this is October. Where were you guys at in September when you're supposed to <laughs> behave this way? So that's the day before season. Then the day of season, I look out across this big bench and there's a bowl. I can't really hear him very well because the wind's blowing, but I can see his head tilted back and he's just letting it rip. I mean, he is letting the world know. So we snuck out in front of him. I call called him into 125 yards and shot him. And so uh, to your point of how weird September seemed, that Colorado hunt, October 9th and 10th, those bulls were on fire. I'm like, this is weird. What is going on here? And uh, so our next question, this person says, hey, I listened to the mid-season podcast, and I read a lot, and I heard you guys talk about muted bugling activity in the 2020 traditional period of the rut i'd love to hear your thoughts on what the cause of that is and then he had some follow-up questions but i'll just say right now i have no idea what the cause of it was i can tell you that was my observation in montana in idaho in then in colorado completely different even a lot of bugling going on in New Mexico, that season opened October 17th and there was bugling going on. Hmm. So I don't know it's, what the cause is. Yeah. And see last year for me uh, in 2019, it seemed like the elk were bugling like crazy October 10th through the 25th in Idaho. And, hmm. you know, I was following a, a good herd with a couple herd bulls and they were bugling their heads off from daylight till like 10 or 11 in the morning. And then they fired up again at 5.30 in the evening and bugled all night long for the week leading up to rifle season. And opening morning, we had three bulls bugling. Sam shot a, a nice six point. And then like on the 23rd or 24th, I took my oldest son out and there were bulls bugling on, on that date. And then this year in Idaho, I spent three days leading up to rifle season scouting, trying to find elk so I could take my daughter hunting, and I didn't hear a bugle. I didn't hear a single bugle those three days going back to the same areas. We did end up uh, getting a bugle at about one o'clock in the afternoon on opening day, and that's the bull she ended up shooting, but it was a younger bull. Um, he was He was pushing cows still, but that was the only real bugle we heard. Uh, for most of the day. So it, we didn't get, and then when we went on our rifle hunt in the back country, I, I figured we would hear a couple bugles. We had one bull one night that bugled a couple times and that was all we heard back in there. So I didn't hear near the bugles in October this year that I have in the past in the, in the area we hunt. Wow. Well, I don't, I don't have uh, an explanation for the cause of September being what I would consider pretty quiet uh, yeah. i don't know i don't know how to answer do you want to hear my theory sure i'd love it so this this might be a a bit of a stretch but elk have millions of scent receptacles in their nose and their mm -hmm. sense of smell is so incredibly sensitive and we were in arizona several years ago and there was a, a dead cow you know cattle uh, had died up on a knob and we got out of the truck probably 300 yards from it and could smell it really strongly. 
And as we walked up the ridge, got closer and closer, it literally was making us gag because the smell was so strong. And I just thought, think about an elk and their sense of smell. You know, when they smell something like that, their sense of smell is 100 times better than ours or something. Imagine how overpowering that smell is to an elk when when they smell it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't smell as bad as a rotting cow, hopefully. By the end of September, we might, but, but we don't smell that bad, but they're so, their noses are so sensitive, they can distinguish that smell, and that's what keeps them alive. I mean, that's really the, the crutch of hunting is keeping the wind in your favor, because if the wind swirls, the elk know there's danger, and, and they just don't take a chance. They're so wary once they get spooked, uh, once they get a, a whiff of danger or see you or or you know, any of their senses, but especially their nose. So this year there were fires everywhere and most of the West was covered up in smoke. And I just remember the first couple of days of elk season thinking, how can I hike up this mountain? My lungs are just full of smoke. My throat just was on fire from breathing smoke in. And I got thinking, think about those elk and how sensitive their noses are to that smoke. And you know how smoke just burns our sinuses when we breathe it in. It, you know, it just kind of yeah. numbs everything in our sense of smell. I wonder if the elk didn't have some of that where they weren't able to utilize their sense of smell because of the smoke. And because of that, they were just so much more wary. You know, we just really struggled to get close to an elk in September. We found them and they would bugle. But as soon as we got within 100 or 150 yards, they just go quiet and move off. And, you know, that happens when elk get pressured uh, in predator areas. We've we've dealt with it for sure. But this year it was just on a different scale. Uh, it was a lot more intense. Uh, just it seemed like every bull we struggled to to call into us or even if we got close and pushed them at all they would move off and so it just it really seemed like they were a lot more wary and i just got thinking i wonder if it was their sense of smell being affected by the smoke that that made them act that way hmm. i would have not thought that but i i never well i've never considered that as a possibility i guess is the way i'd say that yeah, I just I, I hadn't seen it at that level before like we did this year and it seemed to be mm-hmm. widespread. I you know talking and there were days that we got into good bugling and you know elk racking normal but they were very few compared to to what we've seen in previous years. Well, there you have it, folks. Corey Jacobson has the answer. Yeah, published that. Cool. And, uh, yeah. It's basically <laughs> science. I mean, it's it it's kind of is just science and anatomy of an elk and well so, yeah. I'm, I'm that's the best best rationale i've heard all year Corey. so i'm <laughs> i'm going with that i'd like to say i pulled it out of thin air but mm. i pulled it out of smoky air if anything uh-huh lots of thoughts and thinking about it i would bet <laughs> No, I, I, I'm sure. I, I know you well enough that if the elk aren't responding, you don't hardly sleep at night. It's like, what's going on? You, you probably sit up all night long thinking about it. Whereas me, I go to bed and uh, get some good rest and say, I'll worry about that tomorrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this person has a related question to that. And, uh, Matt asks, uh, when that condition exists, 
I'd appreciate hearing how you tactically adapt when there isn't much bugling activity. Do you transition to spot and stock? Do you lay off calls because you don't want to give yourself up? Something else? No. I, yeah. I, I don't have an answer because I fall into the old trap of I'll always do what I've always done and I'll always get what I always got. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, we uh, we did try to adapt a little this year. There was one bull in particular that uh, my daughter, Jessie, we got her on it. And this bull, we were within 60 yards of it for three hours and just could not get him to come in. And we couldn't get inside his bubble. Uh, you know, it was just brushy enough and thick enough. We never got a good look at him. We did see him pop out on an open hillside at about 300 yards right before we moved in and, and started engaging with him. But we got in there and he was screaming, we would rake and he would rake. And typically you get in like that and get a bull that engaged in the conversation. And it's not as difficult to get them to come in. You know, they'll at least come in. Uh, if you have a, a shooter set out in front of a collar, they'll usually at least come into that shooter setup. And we could not get him to budge. And we tried, you know, moving in 10 yards even and raking a tree. And it just seemed like he wanted that 60 to 80 yard buffer between him always and he was just so vocal. His cows weren't right there. I mean, it, it was a perfect storm for an elk to come in, and he wouldn't come in. And so I ended up going back uh, a few days later with uh, my youngest son, Sam, and had the exact same experience, except for at this point, we couldn't even get within 60 yards. Now it was like 120 yards. And they went way up the mountain to bed. We went up there, and he ended up circling back down around, left all his cows, and we found him back down at the bottom where we had initially engaged him that morning. And I thought, okay, he's away from his cows. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. This is the situation that we've been waiting for. He can't, he, there's no way. I've, I won't say never, but it's very rare that an elk will ignore you once he leaves his cows and he's bedded middle of the day. It's just so easy to get him worked up and coming in. So we got him to bugle from about 300 yards. And I said, okay, we're just... I'm not going to make a peep. We're going to move in quiet and we're going to get in as close as we can. And then I'm just going to cow call. I'm not going to challenge him anymore because you know, we challenged him a few days ago and it just didn't work. So all I'm going to do is cow call. Huh. So we got, got to a hundred yards and I knew right where he was bedded because we had had a little bugling match with him a few days before in that, that area. And I stepped out on the edge of the ridge and I let out two cow calls and he answered right back, just right where I figured he was. And I thought, okay, Whoa. here we go. He's, he's coming in. And uh, so we got all set up and we're listening for branches breaking. I'm, I'm expecting the silk's going to walk in and I let out a few more cow calls, nothing, nothing, few more cow calls. We stood there for 15 minutes and didn't hear anything. And I thought maybe he just stood up in his bed and he's waiting for us to, to move to him. So we circled around, made sure we had the wind good and got over on the ridge he was on. And at this point we were 45, 50 yards above where he should have been and I cow call looking down the hill, and he answers 400 yards up the mountain from us. Oh. So we climb, you know, get around, get the wind good, climb up towards him, cow call. We're within 150 yards again. He answers again 300 yards above us. Just could not get him in. So I, and then we went back, you know, in rifle season, and he was nowhere to be found. There was no, no bugling or anything there. So I guess to answer the question, you know, typically I will try to adjust if I'm struggling and recognizing that challenge him just isn't working if we're challenging and and the bulls are moving off and i'm noticing a trend that they just 
don't want to fight or they aren't as aggressive, I'll, you know, I'll switch to calling and doing more cow calls. Uh, but this year, it seemed like cow calls and bugles, neither one were working. And so I think at that point, you do have to, uh, you have to modify it in some way. And I think for me, if, if I was in that situation, where I knew the elk were in there, maybe they're still even vocal, like what we found, and they just won't come into the calls. I think, you know, hunting with, with a 14, 15-year-old, it's a little different. Uh, if it was just yeah. me, I would probably do some calling from back and, and get them kind of pinpointed. But once I got inside that 100 yards, it would be 100% just spot and stock, just one step at a time and waiting and, you know, doing a ton of glassing, just looking for a dark leg hanging out under a tree or a tan body bedded over on a ridge or just, you know, you, you have to adapt. And yeah. this year was one of those years that if you didn't adapt, unfortunately, it was it was tough to find success. I didn't. I didn't adapt very well. So... After we did our last podcast, I went to the same place that you and Donnie and I and uh, Bo and all of us hunted last year. Yeah. Same week of the year. I'm like, well, this could be good. And I have to do my film permit so far in advance. And once we do pick a geographic area, we're kind of stuck there. It's not like we can go and move 20 miles away because uh, our film permit is a function of number of days, geographic size we're permitted for, blah, blah, blah. So we show up there and in five days we saw two groups of elk, both of which were on private. And that was it. There were no tracks. There were nothing. And what happened, you know, last year we had all that early snow, had some brutal cold opening week, not just weekend, opening week was almost like hunting in January with the snow and the cold. And then it got followed up by another storm just before we got there. And so it pushed the elk through this migration area uh, where we took advantage of it last year. Hmm. This year, we saw more moose than we did elk. (laughs) We had one storm opening day. And then it got 60, 70 degrees for 10, 12 days. And uh, I didn't adapt very well. I, uh, it was a bummer. So you didn't miss out on anything this year. Yeah, that's good point. to hear. That's, I was thinking I might have because there were, there were plenty of elk there last year. And uh, yeah. it, was, nah. it was a neat area nah, nah. for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then I had a limited entry tag in Montana. And I'd be curious your thoughts on this, Corey. I, I think, here, I, I, I'm going to say, I think I overthink it. Uh, that's that's kind of like a circular equation, right? You think you overthink <laughs> it? All right. I'm, I'm going with, I'm sure I'm overthinking this. So I go out to this spot, and central Montana is just this checkerboard of public and private and Everyone knows I like to hunt these boundaries because they, they're they kind of sanctuaries in the fact that most people don't want to mess with that stuff. So I've been passing on some bulls. I know there are some nice bulls in here. And the last day I have to hunt, I see this really nice bull. I thought I caught a glimpse of him the night before, but I wasn't sure. Well, then I find him, and he's bedded about 100 yards onto the public on this ridge line. 
And I got about a mile and a half loop to get over to him. So I start trucking over there. And while I do it, he gets up and moves on to private and beds over there. So I go over and I set up where if he comes out, he's not very far from where I'd seen him the night before. I'm like, all right, he's going to come out and feed. And when he comes out and feeds on public, I'm going to be right there. So I sit there all day. Some really nice mule deer come by and I don't shoot them. I'm thinking, Randy, you know, this, you might live to regret this day. No, he's coming out. I know he's going to come out. This is, they're so habitual in late season. So I wait. All of a sudden, I look up the ridge about five, 600 yards, and here's three bulls that come out a raghorn, a five point, and a small six point. And they're, they're probably four, I don't know, maybe 500 yards on to public. I'm like, hmm, I still got an hour and a half. I'm not, I'm not giving up on this guy. I've, I've been sitting here all day. I'm, I'm not giving up. Well, a half hour goes by. I'm like, all right, I got about an hour left. And these three bulls over here, they just, they want to get shot. But no, I'm, I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm going to wait for this guy a little longer. So I wait a little longer, maybe another 20 minutes. And I'm thinking, hmm, what if he doesn't come out? <laughs> and these three are over here closer to the, to the trailhead. Heck with it. I, I'm going to go see if, if this can happen. So I, start, I get behind a ridge and I start stalking over there and I pop up out of the ridge. The wind's blowing about 30 miles an hour. I pop up and look and these elk now, for some reason, I mean, I've been downwind of them. I've been out of sight, but for some reason they just line out and get on this cattle trail and start walking to private and they get to private. I'm like, oh, great. Now I've given up on the other bull that I've been sitting on all day. I him and haw so long that now these three bulls are out of range and they're on private. I, I, I ended up not filling my elk tag. <laughs> uh, but I don't really regret it because I just, <laughs> I just felt like this bigger bull, he was cool looking. He, I mean, he wasn't going to be like a monster bull, but he just was really cool. And he is one of the only bulls that wasn't broken up. And so I was willing to sit there and pass all these other opportunities waiting for him to come out of the brush, but he didn't. So that's why I'm convinced I was overthinking this. Normally my gut would say, Randy, those three bulls over there, you better get your butt over there and put a tag on one of those. And it would have been all done. So I I didn't adapt very well. Or, Or when I decided to adapt, Time was no longer in my favor. So, and that's sometimes the way it is. You just got to make that split second decision, and sometimes you wait a little too long, and uh, the opportunity fleets. Yeah. What are they? What's the old saying? He who hesitates is lost. <laughs> well, I lost. <laughs> uh, and see, there's there's another side to that equation because I'm usually the one that pushes too hard and. It's uh, kind of the same situation. Sometimes you push too hard and it, uh, it bites you. And then you yeah. sit there and kick yourself and think, ah, I should have just been more patient. He was coming right up here and, you know, I didn't even have to call and I decided to call. You know, there's all those things that you do and 
that's hunting. Just you don't know whether to be patient and wait. And I think you just go off of what you've done in the past and what you've seen work in the past and yeah, quickly realize so, that there's not a lot of consistency in elk hunting. Here's another what if scenario. Two days before that, I'm in this same general location and at daylight I see five bulls. I'm like, whew, that one is a whopper. So I do my trek, about a mile and a half to get over there. And they're now right on the boundary of public and private. And they go over and they bend. Well, this one bull is a monster on one side and he's broke at the third on the other side. And so I gave up on him. I didn't even sit there and wait for them to come back to private or to public because I decided, you know what? I'm not going to shoot a broken bull like that because next year, if he's not broken, he's going to be a tremendous bull for somebody to shoot. And so I, I also had that going through my head of, that might have been really stupid, Randy. That that was a big old mature bull. He's probably, a, I don't know, I'd guess to be as big as he was, seven or eight-year-old bull. So, I don't know. Hmm. Would you would you stay there and pursue a broken bull? I, I'm seeing five to ten bulls a day. So it's not like he's the only one. Yeah. You know, I... Broken bulls are kind of a, a different topic for me because I'm not a trophy hunter. No, and so you know, typically when I see a broken bull, it's a five point. You know, it's got a, a tine broke off or a six point that's missing the fourth, and you know, I, I'm not concerned about score or anything like that. So I probably wouldn't be too awfully concerned about shooting a broken bull, but. If I'm on a limited hunt where I've drawn a tag and I am holding out for a more mature bull, again, not caring too much about score or anything, but those kind of hunts are the ones that I, you know, this year I shot a, a little bull with my bow and um, people were giving me a little bit of grief about it. Just, you know, <laughs> I mean, some people were very serious in, in just saying, I can't believe that somebody at your level of hunting that's been hunting as long as you have would shoot an immature bull like that. And, you know, I, I just, and that's fine. They can question and judge all they want. And I hunt for different reasons than other people do yeah. maybe. But um, there are times when I will hold out for a big bull. And when I draw my tag in Arizona, that'll be an example. And I draw my tag after 20 years in Colorado, I'll, I'll hold out for a more mature bull. And then I might, you know, I might look at something like if he's, especially a broken beam, because um, mm -hmm. in that case, I am probably more uh, hunting, you know, and it sounds bad to say, and I don't mean to say that I'm hunting for antler, but uh, antler size might have more of an influence on which animal I choose to, to put my effort into hunting. Whereas, you know, hunts like this year in Idaho, public land, over-the-counter type stuff, man, I think any elk that you call in and, and get to shoot is a trophy. So, yeah. I, uh, I, I think I would probably not shoot a broken bull if I was in an area where there were a lot of elk and and uh, there were some good sized elk and I was able to feel confident I could find something comparable that might not be as badly broken. Well, I uh, <clears throat> I I, did, I can't say I passed on him because when I finally got in range, he's on private. But I didn't even stay there and wait for him and and you know, do the, the normal setup. Oh, I think he's going to come back here and feed and he'll be on public. Um, 
And uh, I'll be honest, I also, and this is where the overthink it part comes from. I'm sitting there and everybody knows I've shot a bull in Colorado. So it's not like I'm going to be lacking for meat this winter unless my camera crew comes and bums it all again, like they normally do. (laughs) And so I'm in this conundrum of, okay, if I wait and hold out for just the absolute monster, people are going to say you're hunting for antlers. If I shoot just, you know, a raghorn or one of the five points I had chances at, people are going to say, oh, you just felt like you had to shoot something to get it on camera. And I never shoot anything because I feel like I got to get it on camera. For me, it's just what my gut tells me. And I would say this is probably the first year in a long time, maybe the first time ever since I've been filming, that I feel like I didn't just do what my gut told me. My my gut told me to not even go after those three that, that other night, to just wait out that one and see if it happened because he was he wasn't as big as the broken bean bowl but he is intact and he just had a really cool configuration and i got to watch him for a long time i felt like all right this is this is one of those things where you're building this i don't know if relationship is the right word but (laughs) you just feel like okay we're playing this game and i wanted to keep playing that game and i feel like I, I let a little sense of urgency slip in and I, I went after those other three and ended up with nothing. Um, and I don't know, I, I didn't stay close enough where if that bull would have got up and fed on the private or off private, uh, that I would have had a chance that last night. But I oh know I had a lot of thoughts going through my head that I suspect most people would just be thinking, you know what? I'm shooting that thing, uh, whichever one it was. And, but it was a special a unit. It's not that hard to drop, but if you go into certain spots there, you can find consistently find elk in late November because they're in that sanctuary mode. Uh, and every once in a while, you'll stumble into a good one. So I uh, I didn't adapt very well. I didn't, I in in my in, I guess the point of all this is in my indecision. What do they say? Indecision is a decision. My, <laughs> yeah. waffle, my waffling back and forth, I ended up screwing up all opportunities. So, oh, well, there's always next year, I hope. <laughs> but next year, I'm just going to do whatever my gut tells me to do and not be overthinking. Oh, well, I should go there. No, I should go here. Oh, what will people think of that? What will they think of this? You know what? I just hunt for for the reasons I hunt. I think you said that earlier. Is I have my own motivations and, and incentives or reasons for hunting, and that's what I should stick to. Yep. So, but. no, and that's it's so hard because especially with social media and everything, you know, everybody you see somebody post a picture of a giant bull and it's like, Oh, I would, I would love to shoot that bull, you know, and I'd love to be able to post a picture of a big bull like that and get all the attaboys that everybody gives you on social media. And so you, I think there are people that, and it's even, you know, I, I have to remind myself and that I think those negative comments were good to remind me, you know what? I, I don't 
get too worked up about it. If somebody wants to judge the size of elk I shoot, I'm not out trophy hunting. I'm not out to prove that I can shoot a big elk. I'm, I just love elk hunting. And man, if the bull comes in, especially the situation we had this year in archery season, I, when I pull my bow back, I only know one way to let the arrow down, and that's pulling that little trigger on my release. <laughs> that's, uh, I, I, I have a habit of that, that. Just if an elk's in front of me and I'm at full draw, there's very few times I have the willpower to, to let down. And, you know, I'm just, I'm not a trophy hunter, and I do like big elk. Yeah. And if I have a choice between a giant and a, a smaller one standing there, I'm going to shoot the giant probably every time. But I, yeah. uh, I'm not going to take a chance of going without filling my tag in my freezer in the hopes that I shoot one that has bigger antlers. That's just it's not how I'm yeah. wired. Yeah. And some, so this is the second year in a row I have not filled my Montana deer tag, which some people would say, Randy, there, it's so easy to fill a deer tag in Montana. You, you must not have left your house. And it was just, I'm really picky about deer, not as far as size, but just about the opportunity. I'll admit there was a, I, I made my mind up that I was going to shoot a, a mountain whitetail. There's a place I go where everyone is elk hunting or mule deer hunting, and there are some whitetails there. And I love going in there and shooting these three or four-year-old whitetails amongst everybody else doing their thing. So I'd pass some really good deer opportunities. And I did go Thanksgiving morning to try fill that deer tag. And I saw one of those bucks I wanted to shoot, but he got in the timber. I was filming myself. He got in the timber before I got the camera set up. And I sat there all day, and he didn't come back out. But here I am now two years in a row not filling a Montana deer tag, and I have zero reservations about it because I yep. knew what I wanted to do. And I didn't need to go and fill the tag for it to feel worthwhile for me to be out in the mountains trying to find one of these whitetails. And after that, that Thanksgiving morning, when the one got in the timber, two other whitetail bucks, small four by fours came by and I could have easily shot them, but they're only two and a half year old deer. It's like, you know, I want to just sit here and watch these goofy things do their rutting in November. And, and so that's why I go there and hunt. I'm completely comfortable with that outcome. And, uh, I, I'm with you. I, I hunt how I do, why I do select to pull the trigger when I do for whatever feels good to me. So, yep. and sometimes what feels good to me now at four in the afternoon might not be the same thing that's Feeling good to me at four thirty in that. Attitude uh, changes by the minute. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, people, it's, people have said before. You know, I've always heard, uh, "Don't pass up on the first day what you'll shoot on the last day." <laughs> and I disagree with that. I mean, I I really will pass up an animal on the first day and settle for something much smaller later on in the hunt. Sometimes. Just because yeah. I'm not ready to be done hunting. When I drew Utah, yeah. you know, I'd put in for <laughs> 10 or 11 years to draw Utah. And the very first night, I think it was even before we had camp set up, we pulled off the road and a bull answered. And so we grabbed our packs and my bow and went after it and called in this really nice, like 320 inch six point to 20 yards broadside. And I Ooh. let him walk. And, yeah. you know, I'm just thinking, okay, this hunt, you know, 
right off the road for Sulka Collin, 320 inches. I, we're going to find some big ones. I never saw a bigger bull the rest of the hunt. And I ended up shooting, a, I wouldn't say a small, but a smaller than that one, five by six on the last day of the hunt. And had I filled my tag that first day, I think I would have regretted not getting the full experience and not seeing what was really in there. I mean, we had a tough hunt and it yep. wasn't a lot of fun, but I would have never known that. I would have never known yeah. that I shot a, a really big bull on a really tough year had I not spent eight days trying to trying to kill an elk. Yep. No, I, and I think the amount of effort invested also is a big part of what you feel you got out of the experience. Yep. And, and when the I, trophy, <laughs> you know, the yeah. size of it, I think, grows with with each challenge <laughs> and struggle you have. Yeah, I I think of some of the the elk I've shot after five or six days, and they mean a lot to me. And I learned a lot, and the experience was fulfilling. And uh, so uh, anyone listening, I guess my point to all that is don't overthink it. <laughs> go and do it your gut tells you be happy about it i don't care if it's because you want something all right i'm only shooting six years or older or if you say you know what i'll shoot spikes cows raghorns and 12 year old bulls whatever works for you go do it and don't worry about what anyone else thinks it's yep. not their tag so i was just gonna say it, you you bought the tag you get to decide as long as it's legal nobody else gets to judge or yep. make that call yeah. Someone asked us a question about deer. And the only reason I'm gonna quickly pull it up is because uh that the answer I don't I didn't have the answer, but somebody else did. And it was in the newspaper here in Montana. Oh. Um we we had a huge a big spike in the number of cactus mule deer bucks this year in Montana. Really? And a lot of people were commenting about it. And this person asked the question, uh, where is it? Uh, anyhow, uh, he asked, you know, we, I've seen a large number of cactus bucks this year. Do you have any explanation of why that might be? Uh, and prior to reading this article, I would have said, no, I'm clueless. Um, well, in Montana, we had EHD, which is what episodic hemorrhagic disease uh, mm -hmm. our whitetails get it really bad. We'll have big dives. Yeah. Um, so the person that was quoted in the article explained that sometimes when you have that, it doesn't affect mule deer as much as whitetail, but it affects their hormones or whatever, uh, as they fight off the fever. It's not as lethal to them. It sounds like. And so he explained that's the reason why we had such a large, increase in the number of cactus bucks in montana this year so huh. yeah interesting so does it make the bucks sterile when they get that you know that's the i don't know if it's just sterile and they'll shed these antlers next year and everything will go back to normal or or what the deal is but huh. uh he that's what he attributed it to so interesting and he had a whole yeah. bunch of whole bunch of titles after his name so it has to be I'm true. With, yeah, I'm going with him more than I would who has CPA after him. <laughs> more than somebody that makes up a theory about the smoke causing the elk not to bugle. I, <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It was a long season this year for me. It was. I, yeah. I, 
I did end up. So the story I told you about going to central Montana, uh, that was kind of a makeup hunt that I, I'd went earlier in the year and hadn't had much luck. And I was supposed to go to Oregon, but all the COVID restrictions about, you know, number of people who can gather restaurants, hotels, blah, 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 all this stuff. Uh, my son and I ended up canceling, uh, our Oregon, uh, hunt this year because of all those restrictions. So I, uh, I didn't have a camera guy available. So I said, I'm going to go film this myself in central Montana and the footage will look like I filmed it myself. Very poor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so that's what you did. Yep. I did. And, uh, didn't go to Oregon. Uh, went to central Montana and I, I did have a blast sitting there in November, watching these goofy deer doing what they do, seeing some nice elk, kind of messing up a few opportunities. And so you oh, just ate your, you ate your Oregon elk tag. I ate it. Yes. Man, I, I think I Oregon did pretty well this year on non-resident elk tags. It didn't get used. Maybe. Donnie yeah, and I, each, I, we had one too, planning on going over and weren't able to go due to the fires. They had uh, that middle of September, all the fires along the freeway and west of the freeway, and they shut down all the national forest and state forest in Western Oregon for basically the week that we were planning on being there. Yeah. So we ate our tag. Yeah. Well, I told my crew told my son Matthew, you know what, if this is the worst thing that happens to me in 2020, <laughs> it, I'm going to, I'm going to come out of it a heck of a lot better than other people did. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm not complaining about it, but so what else is on your mind as it relates to elk hunting? Anything? Man, I just, I, I was kind of the same. I had a long season this year. It was just, it was too long. You know, I got tired of yeah. hunting elk um, and I don't think we've talked since the last podcast, but we did the, uh, we did our backcountry trip with the llamas and Ooh. yeah, I had a great time there and then, uh, came back and hunted with my youngest son and had an incredible story there. He shot a bull on the last evening of the last day of, of rifle season. And, uh, the, the story of the shot and everything itself, well, the whole hunt was pretty crazy but he uh he hit the bull a little far back and we ended up jumping it just before dark and so we backed out and i went back in the next morning and tracked it just another 80 or 90 yards and it bedded down again but it had bedded down on top of a rock bluff which Hmm. as soon as i saw the tracks going up there i thought okay i've seen this before they go and bed up on a rock bluff because the wind's coming down at night so they can smell anything above them and they don't have to worry about anything below them because nothing can get to them when they're injured. It's, it's not uncommon. And I got up on that rock bluff and there was a bunch of blood and no elk. And I thought, I've Uh-oh. seen this before too. <laughs> so I've peeked over the edge and 60, 60 feet down below me, his elk's laying there piled up. It had died and fell off of the bluff and so that's that wasn't the worst of it when i got down to it there were two trees that grew up together at the bottom and formed a v and kind of grew out from each other that elk landed head first right in front of that v and his body came over the top of his head and his antlers and landed in the v so i I had 
I had a bit of a time by myself trying to get up underneath that elk's rear end and push the entire body back up over its head so I could wedge it out from between that tree. And then when I did, its antler was stuck so far in the ground into the roots of the tree that I had troubles pulling the head back around. It ended up splitting the skull in half, broke off one of the antlers completely at the at the pedicle and then uh, broke off an eye guard on the other side. But I found all the pieces of the antler and it all worked out. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh man. That's a, are we going to get to see that on destination elk? We are. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I saying that was speaking of self filming. I I've filmed a handful of hunts and I've not filmed any really since my kids started hunting and I've mm. always had somebody else there to film most of what they're doing. You know, my, my oldest, I filmed a couple of his with a cell phone or something, but never got real serious. And it's tough because I'm sitting there trying to coach Sam on what to do, you know, where to hold, how far it is. And I'm trying to run the camera and we got the first shot. He missed the first shot and got that on film, but then the bull ran off and I bugled actually. And about five minutes later, it came walking back out on the same hillside. This is November 3rd, came walking out on the same hillside and we scrambled again. And I didn't think about the camera. And when I looked back, it was pointing at the ground on his shot when he actually hit it. It was at least turned on, but it wasn't pointing at the elk. So don't get to see the shot, but uh, as far as the shot that hit it, but we get to see the bull when it comes out and see him miss and then the tracking and recovering it off of the cliff and all that. So Cool. Well, <clears throat> out on my YouTube channel, I, I put uh, a video of me filming my wolf hunt from last year with my cell phone. That's all, that's all that it's filmed with. I was going to throw it out and Dale was like, no, 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 we can make something of that. So they put it up there. Now we're getting ready to cook a wolf here in the next week or so. <laughs> would you would you would you eat wolf if i prepared it for you i don't think i would okay and most I, people who have commented because in that video i said yeah look i got this thing all quartered and packed up ready to go can't wait to cook it well here it is a year later before i finally received enough verification from wildlife disease ecologists that i dare cook it yeah. Did you have some of the meat, the actual meat sampled? No. Or are you just getting information, general information about wolf meat and how, how warm it needs to be before it's edible? Yep. Yeah. I, I would probably try a bite if it was, <laughs> if, if it was cooked to a burnt crisp on the outside. I just, I mean, I've, I've eaten bear and I've eaten cougar. Um, you know, both of which carry some pretty deadly diseases if you don't cook them good. You know, same as pig, really. But um, yeah. there's just there's just something about wolf, the diseases they have, and the fact that it's a dog. I yeah, I don't know. Okay. I'd probably well, I'd probably try a, I'd I'd try a bite of a charcoal burnt piece of wolf meat. Okay, I'm gonna try a backstrap of one that is gonna be cooked beyond 165 degrees Fahrenheit. And I don't know who in my crew is going to join me, but they're all fired if they don't try it. <laughs> oh, that'll, that'll probably get more views on that video than the actual wolf hunt itself. 
Probably. And they'll all be conveniently on vacation the day I cook that. I bet they will. My wife is dying to try it. She can't <laughs> hardly wait. She just looked over at me, and now she's laughing out loud. I don't know if people can hear her on the <laughs> microphone, but she's over there laughing out loud as in, over my dead body. No, it's yeah. over your. It's more like over <laughs> your dead body, Randy. Uh, uh, well, Corey, I've I've kept you longer than I was supposed to because I think yeah. aren't you a basketball coach? He's this time of year. I am a basketball coach, and we are we're uh, we're we're doing our best to navigate athletics at the high school level with the uh, COVID pandemic, and so far. We've done okay. Our, we had one of my players, actually, I coached the JV team, and one of my players got COVID, but he had been practicing with varsity. And so we, we separate the teams. JV and varsity don't practice together. Uh, we don't even do mass drills together or anything just so we don't cross-contaminate anybody. Um, but the whole varsity team had quarantined for 14 days which they had a game scheduled for tomorrow night against a team that got second at state last year and they can't play. So I am coaching my JV team and getting them ready to play this varsity team that got second in state last year. And <laughs> hope, that, hope the other team doesn't completely mop us, mop the floor with us. And but yeah, I'm uh, getting ready to go to practice and we've got one more night to implement three full court press breakers and all sorts of new stuff that typically at this point in the season we don't have to worry about with you know playing other jv level teams we don't have to get as creative early in the season i have a super young team i only have two players that have uh, played for me before so Ooh, wow but they're looking good they're cool. I, I think they, i think they'll hold their own it won't be a it won't be a complete blowout hopefully <laughs> oh. Oh, that's good but i i apologize that that i got into storytelling mode here and messed us up but, uh, you don't have to apologize to me i always i always know that with rabbit holes and storytelling we can sometimes stretch things out so i'm i'm <laughs> never I've, I've never once been in a situation where i thought okay i need to text randy and tell him i gotta go and wrap this up so we're all good uh, Okay. Well, now that I think we've got the technology problem figured out, let's get caught up on these podcasts. Sounds good. I've got a right. I've got a couple more stories to tell about llamas. Right. I have firsthand experience Ooh. with llamas I can report on. Oh man, I want to hear that. Yeah. We'll we'll, we'll save that for the next round. Uh, sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being here, folks. Corey, yep. stay well. Good luck on the game. I appreciate it. Stay healthy and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. All right. Thank you.